to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. One thing that sponsorship professionals fear, mostly those at rights holders, is a crisis. A situation that may see sponsors walking away from the organisation or at the very least questioning their association. And let me be clear, when I say crisis... I mean an athlete or a staff member brings the organisation into disrepute. For those that are high-profile rights holders, it almost feels like it's only a matter of time before a crisis impacts their commercial portfolio. How long can a sponsor put up with or how bad does a crisis need to be before a sponsor seriously considers whether their values are still aligned with the rights holders? In a commercial world, particularly one where a rights holder may still be providing great return on investment on the sponsorship, it can be a cloudy question. As I said, it almost feels like it's only a matter of time before today's or this week's bad news story directly affects you and your sponsorships. That's why... Knowing how to communicate with sponsors during a crisis and being prepared for the inevitable crisis is where the focus should be in the quiet times. In sports, two of the industry leaders when it comes to crisis communications are Jim Rocco and Isaac Benjamin from PRCG Sports. PRCG Sports provides strategic marketing, public relations and crisis communication services to owners, managers, athletes and brands. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship and you're listening to episode 88 brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us for this episode. I hope you are well and as regular listeners know, now is the time in the show for some shout outs and I'm excited to say that we have a fair few this time. The first is Chris Russell from Sydney, Australia who has worked at some great places including Octagon and Invictus Games. Chris connected on LinkedIn and shot me a note that said, Hi, Daniel, I've been listening and enjoying the Inside Sponsorship podcast. Keep up the great work. I find it super valuable. Glad to hear it, Chris. Thanks very much. Next is Tyrone Rawlins from South Africa and owner of One Movement Sports Management who tells me that I usually listen to episodes whilst out riding my mountain bike. I have a route which has about an hour climb in it, which generally covers an episode before having fun on the descent of the downhill tracks. I came across Inside Sponsorship towards the end of last year and have been catching up on the episodes. Thank you for an engaging podcast with incredible guests and invaluable insights. Tyrone is a keen mountain biker myself. Thanks for getting in touch and I love that you're listening while you're out there riding your mountain bike. And my best piece of advice for your climbs, control your breathing and keep pedaling. Thanks for getting in touch. Thomas Dunn, Business Development Executive at Cow Corner Sport in London, also connected on LinkedIn and wrote, Hi Daniel, absolutely love the podcast. I'm a recent graduate trying to break into the commercial side of the sports industry with a particular focus on sponsorship. I'm learning so much from listening to industry professionals during the podcast. Thanks for all that you are doing. Thanks, Thomas. But the real thanks, as we all know, must go to the guests. They're amazing and very generous in giving up their time and speaking quite candidly and sharing their expertise with everyone. Matthew Hughes, Partnerships Delivery Specialist at Bupa in Melbourne, Australia, was the next to connect and he said, I've been a listener for a while now and I've enjoyed the range of topics and guests that you've hosted. I often listen whilst running or commuting pre-COVID and I've found your podcast an engaging and practical tool to keep up with the global sponsorship trends. Well done and please keep up the good work. Thanks, Matt. Great to hear from you. Seb Aguadello, entrepreneur at Antler in Sydney, Australia, shot me a quick message on LinkedIn and said, Hi, Daniel. I enjoy your Inside Sponsorship podcast. Thanks for sharing some useful content. Thanks to you, Seb. Great to hear from you and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And finally, as always, connected on LinkedIn, Yashvir Setia. He connected and he said, Hello, Daniel. I recently got 
into the Inside Sponsorship Podcast after procrastinating for a while. Great to hear you are finally a listener, Yashvira. And I can tell you, and all the listeners, we're always trying to find the next guest that can give you more great insights and share their expertise. Thanks to everyone who got in touch for a shout out. I really love hearing from you all. As I said earlier, our guests in this episode are Jim Rocco and Isaac Benjamin from PRCG Sports. Jim Rocco is a senior consultant and director at PRCG Sports. Jim has a broad background in sports marketing, branding, and public relations across a range of sports industries. And his experience includes more than 15 years at HBO Sports, working on a myriad of sports-related issues. He managed numerous outside agencies in all phases of sports marketing, branding, and promotion, and liaised with talent, their representatives, and HBO's creative team on a range of issues including appearances negotiations and crisis and other sensitive issues joining jim is isaac benjamin an account supervisor at prcg sports where he has worked extensively with law firms and lawyers financial professionals and similar clients isaac has a passion for positioning message development and brand strategy and he has also worked extensively on both crisis and litigation communications matters but before we hear from jim and isaac daniel collier hill calls commercial director apac has delivered part three and his final part of his blog series which focuses on hacking sponsorship and he joins us to discuss his blog which looks at hacking perceived value and hacking audience segmentation here's daniel daniel collier hill welcome back to the show so far in your hacking sponsorship series We've unpacked in part one, strategy and headcount, and in part two, asset management and creative. And we'd encourage the listeners to go back and listen to those podcast episodes. They should be the last two. Or visit coresoftware.com to read those blogs. And while each have an important role in sponsorship, none really do come close to what we're going to unpack in, in your third and final piece in this series. Yeah, thanks for having me again, mate. I guess to round out this series... We'll lift a lid on perceived value and audience segmentation. I live in Melbourne, Australia, so I'm beginning to despise this phrase, but in our new normal, how we value sponsorship deals in line with business and financial position and objectives is absolutely going to change. I 100% agree. And, and taking centre stage in that change, I believe, and I'm pretty sure you agree, is hacking perceived value. So let's unpack and hack perceived value in sponsorship yeah absolutely commercial value and perceived value are two very different things we might see tons of great deals over the next six to 12 months but how we perceive their impact and success to the business is is changing and you'll notice the keyword here is perceived not actual i think we can appreciate that the pressure from a cfo to justify marketing spend has genuinely never been more intense <laughs> than it is right now a great commercial value on a deal might include low hard costs a decent comparison between asset costs and sponsorship fee and perhaps even you know a, a below market rate cpm or cpi on a, a digital campaign but are those things still important and, and if, are they important right now if we can't attend a game is that bulk buying discount on ticketing still effective anymore and another example, you know, if attendance numbers are still restricted, do we really need that concourse activation that we expected to get, you know, lots of foot traffic to? So perceived value requires both sides of the deal to ask, you know, what's really important to me right now. We've seen a lot of pivoting and shifting spend to other asset types of categories. And that's partly because those assets have genuinely been impacted. But that exercise, however, is somewhat in my view, reshaped what's important to both rights holders and brands. And it seems fairly consistent with other 
thoughts and commentary throughout the industry. If the focus for a brand is to drive online retail sales because in-person has slowed down, the perceived value of their digital-based assets from their sponsorship deal might actually be higher than its commercial value now. So the the best questions, if we can unpack this and, and hack it a little bit, the best questions I've seen asked of late to tackle this sort of commercial value versus perceived value include, what's my business trying to achieve, particularly within the next 30, 60, 90, 120 days? And how can our sponsorship directly impact those outcomes? So it's about breaking them down. Another one's been, you know, what, what crossover exists between our sponsorships and other marketing activities should be a fairly simple question, but it sometimes gets overlooked or sometimes gets overlooked, I should say. You know, what did the CFO ask this morning? Another good one, which the finance guys are like. And then, you know, the last one, which I think is really undervalued and will be really crucial going into 2021. But how is my audience engaging and interacting with us? Oh, there we go. That's as cheesy a segue as I've ever heard on a podcast. And it sets you up nicely for us to roll into the final part, which is hacking audience segmentation. So what are your thoughts around hacking audience segmentation for sponsorship? Well, we've looked at segmentation activities and best practice in previous podcast episodes and blogs. But this time, we really need to understand the why. And don't worry, I'm not about to Simon Sinek listeners. Uh, <laughs> The most powerful thing a writer can have in the present day is a single customer view of their entire audience. And that includes who they are, what their behaviors are, how they engage with us, what do they like or dislike, and, and then even what is their role within our overall audience. Moving into a COVID-affected marketing landscape, brands will need to be more targeted in their approach to engagement, meaning that the database of 50 million people or that EDM that could reach you know half a million people that's just not have to scratch anymore. Can't keep throwing out big numbers. Targeting and retargeting campaigns will no doubt bring success, but there needs to be some accurate data to back that up. As such, I think from a rights holder point of view, sometimes the allure of brands and targeted marketing can actually help bring those unknown fans to the surface and allow them to not only be seen, but included in nurture campaigns for membership or ticketing. I think most brands know who their target audience is. They've done a lot of work around this and they might have pre-built avatars who we know who specifically buy certain products or services, how much they typically spend and and what their buying journey looks like. Some good points there, Daniel, and to help back those up and help the listeners work through those things, you've given us two very specific hacks. So what's the first one? They're pretty simple. Number one, work backwards from your avatars. And this is X engages with us on Y channel and responds to Z. As such, we can then create a campaign using specific Z-related assets on Y, and we know on average X engages with us 10 times per week for three to four minutes per engagement. So it's really understanding who is engaging with us on what channel, what medium, how are we doing it, and, and what do they respond to? And that's going back to year eight or year nine maths where you've got to try and figure out what the blank is in the equation, isn't it? It's just <laughs> like that. So that that's a great hack. And it's just really about looking at it from a different perspective and, and reverse engineering it a little bit. What's the second hack that you've got for the listeners? And so to your point there, the reverse engineering, completely flip that first one and find the gap. Who isn't buying your products or services? This will typically be accompanied by, you know, and everyone will like this, the new revenue stream lingo, but it effectively works exactly the same way. 
without sounding like my fingers stuck on the repeat button, understanding your audience is just so important right now. And we're not going to let you get away with three blogs and podcast chats in a series about hacking sponsorship without asking you to get out the tried, trusty crystal ball. So what do you see happening next? Uh, I'll have to work out which crystal ball to look at. Um, I, th- I think as we're wrapping up this hacking sponsorship series, we turn to the, you know, as you said, that crystal ball, which is give me the answers. And, and the, the reality is no one's got the answers. Um, everyone seems to have their own opinion, but it, it never quite works out the same. Uh, what comes next for the sponsorship industry will ultimately be a culmination of, of what we've explored in this series. Um, strategy, headcount, asset management, creative valuations and audience segmentation are all really key components of what makes a genuinely good sponsorship deal. So I think whilst many areas of our industry have been you know, severely impacted by this pandemic, and, and to be honest, there's been nothing sort of devastating. I think as we start to climb out of it, there's going to be some really amazing individuals and work being done here. And I can't wait to see what they deliver. I 100% agree. The industry is full of so many smart and creative and entrepreneurial and and can-do people. And when those people come together in a room to figure out what they're going to do about sponsorship going forward, it definitely is exciting. Those things that you speak about, strategy, headcount, asset management, creative valuations and audience segmentation, you've covered off in this three-part blog series and podcast chat. So listeners, they are important things regardless of pre-pandemic, in the pandemic, and, and definitely as we move forward out of the pandemic. So we'd highly encourage you to go back and read those blogs, listen to those podcast chats so that you are well-placed. And Daniel, it's been a fantastic series. So thank you for your input. Thanks very much, mate. Whether you're a rights holder or a sponsor, it almost feels like it's only a matter of time before today's or this week's bad news story directly affects you and your sponsorships. That's why knowing how to communicate with sponsors during a crisis and being prepared for the inevitable crisis is where the focus should be during the quiet times. In sports, two of the industry's leaders when it comes to crisis communications are Jim Rocco and Isaac Benjamin from PRCG Sports. PRCG Sports provides strategic marketing, public relations and crisis communication services to owners, managers, athletes and brands. Jim Rocco is a senior consultant and director at PRCG Sports and Jim has a broad background in sports marketing, branding and public relations across a range of sports industries. Jim's experience includes more than 15 years at HBO Sports working on a myriad of sports related issues. He managed numerous outside agencies in all phases of sports marketing, branding and promotion and liaised with talent, their representatives and HBO's creative team on a range of issues including appearances, negotiations and crisis and other sensitive issues. Joining Jim is Isaac Benjamin, an account supervisor at PRCG Sports where he's worked extensively with law firms and lawyers, financial professionals and similar clients. Isaac has a passion for positioning, message development and brand strategy and he has also worked extensively on both crisis and litigation communications matters. Here's Jim and Isaac. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. We always start the show with an icebreaker or two just to get things rolling and help the listeners get to know you a little bit, start on a bit of a lighter note. Let's start with you, Jim. Let's say that you work in comms at a major rights holder and Isaac is one of your star players, but it's come to light that Isaac has been naughty off the field and has done something bad, something serious. 
and he now needs to front the media to make a statement about it all. Apart from the content of the statement, the what, how are you advising Isaac to approach this media conference? So the first thing I would stress is you just need to be genuine. That's the most important thing. You want to sound genuine and actually be genuine. You want to make sure that you're telling the truth as best you know it at that point. Don't make anything up. And to address it quickly, to to be able to take control of the narrative straight away and say, hey, um, I own this. We're working through it, whatever the case may be. But to to address it head on certainly is important. Isaac's a very good talker, so I would tell him to address that, uh, to to kind of do it in an honest way, almost as if he was talking to a friend as opposed to the media. Sometimes that'll relax people, and that's probably the way to go. So it's just to uh, to be yourself. You know, I mean, unfortunately, if your natural way is not so much um, to be forthcoming, maybe you have to work at it a little bit more. But if I was coaching Isaac in particular, it would just kind of be, be yourself, think about what you want to say ahead of time, try to stick to the script, but uh, just come across in, in, a, in a sensitive and genuine way. Isaac, good luck with your media conference. And now your icebreaker question is pretty simple. It's the same. Let's say the roles are reversed. Jim is the naughty star player. How are you advising that he approaches this situation? If I'm talking to Jim before he goes out on stage with all the the cameras flashing, I'm going to tell him to stick on message and to remember to come across and saying that 20 years of HBO – has proven that he can, he has gotten everything accomplished that he's ever had to do. And he's got the background and the experience that speaks for itself. And now that he's in a moment of adversity, Jim is very down to earth. He's not assuming. He helps everybody who comes to him. I mean, I can't tell you how many times he said that when he was working a boxing match in Vegas and he was the one giving out comp tickets everybody, every A-lister was coming to him and Jim is a pleaser. And I think you can lean on that and make sure that it comes across that you're here to help everybody and he doesn't have a bad bone in his body and to make sure that when you're talking, don't get on the offensive, don't be defensive, just be yourself. And that comes across when you're talking to Jim and that's how he would navigate a crisis for himself as a naughty Jim. (laughs) <laughs> Love those answers, guys. And and it's great to have you on the show to discuss crisis communication in the sponsorship world. However, crisis communication in sponsorship might actually mean slightly different things across the world, especially depending on what position you're in and where you are in the industry, because that might be as a rights holder or a brand or maybe even an agency that helps with sponsorship. So let's stay with you, Isaac. Let's set the scene a little. What does crisis communication actually mean? Is there some sort of accepted definition that we should be working with? Well, for us, you know, a lot of people hear crisis communication, and they think five alarm fire. And so that, therefore, when they're encountering something that's not that five alarm fire, bet the company on this response, they don't think of it as crisis communication. I think the way we refer to it is more sensitive situations. And so therefore, crisis communication, sensitive situation communication, if you were is crafting an effective response to an unstable situation that threatens to have a negative impact on an organization's reputation, goals, or business. Things go wrong, 
it's unavoidable, yet the severity varies and so does the news cycles and the public's engagement with events, good and bad. Jim, sometimes we can sort of avoid addressing an issue and it kind of just fades away. But if we're not that lucky, at what point of a crisis do you feel there needs to be an actual strategy in how the business responds to something? Yeah, well, first of all, we, we classify a crisis into two different categories. We look at it as either unfolding or exploding. And those are pretty um, you know, self-evident statements. But you know, an unfolding crisis is something that you can monitor and try to anticipate to figure out which way things are going to go and come up with a strategy. So that's something that's a little bit of a longer range plan. Like you're, you're keeping the eye on it, you're making sure it doesn't explode, and you're, you're doing whatever you can to mitigate any sort of disaster. An exploding crisis is obviously, as the name indicates, something that you have to deal with immediately. And the best weapon for that is hopefully you're prepared for it ahead of time. We'll talk about that more later. But if you haven't and you just need to jump in uh, with both feet, you at least need to try and process information quickly, not be slow to respond, but still gather facts at the same time. All that is very difficult to do if you haven't prepared, but that's the situation you'll find yourself in. Uh, if you didn't take the time to deal with it prior to then. Isaac, considering what Jim just said, he alluded to being ready ahead of time. Do you think a communication strategy is something that is a bit of a base strategy and that there are some core elements that should always be considered or activated and included and then it's just tailored on top of those elements for any particular crisis or should a strategy maybe be built from the ground up each and every time when we deem we need one? Well, if you were a football coach, or I guess an American football coach, at least that's what I'm picturing, you wouldn't want to start drawing up the plays after you break the huddle and your team goes out on the field. When it comes to crafting a communication strategy for a sensitive situation, the benefit of planning ahead is to beat the bloat. And there's so many things that you feel, we've never experienced this before. What are we going to do? We have to create, you know, invent the wheel. And that's not effective and that will harm you. So I think crafting a playbook, a lot of people will say, oh, I have no idea. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what crisis could happen. How could I possibly prepare? That's what a crisis means. You have no idea what's around the corner. But the reality is you don't need a magic eight ball to understand the eight, nine, 10 core issues that could be facing your organization, or in this case, the athletes that you're sponsoring. And so crafting a plan. So, you know, if one, they get accused of sexual assault two they retire three, they sue you. Any of these issues, you don't have to know all of the details, but you have to know in all of these different buckets, how are we going to go about preparing our response and how are we going to work off that? So then you do have a playbook off that to say, okay, this happens, we have these three or four options. That happens, we have these three or four options. And for many of them, they may be similar, but planning ahead of time and understanding, you don't have to imagine the 150 things that could go wrong. Nobody would ever expect a once in a century pandemic. That's clear. But of the eight, nine core issues that you know will happen or could happen tomorrow, how are you going to navigate those situations? I think is important for building a base beforehand so that you are not creating strategy on the fly. 
And is it fair to say, Isaac, staying with you for a moment, is it fair to say that that's an important step to take so that if it is a crisis, Jim explained one as an exploding crisis, that sounds very stressful to me, that it gives you the ability to not only operate with confidence, but make sure that you minimize any missteps or mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Too often the most glaring mistakes are the ones that you look back and be like, how did you not see this happening? Right? We always think back to the United Airlines of that example where somebody was dragging a passenger off the plane. Well, one of the 10, 11 things you know United Airlines will, hand, will have to face one day is an overbooked flight and passengers not wanting to leave. Right? Even though the, the, the details may be different, you look back and say, how did you not see this happening? How did you not forecast that a situation might arise concerning passengers on a plane who don't want to leave? And so planning, writing down and planning for what you already know about your own organization, about your relationships, and about how you work and and what makes everything effective leaves the unknown to a minimal. Jim, Isaac spoke about some of the key components, but he numbered them. So for you, let's say we're putting together a crisis communication strategy. What are those core elements? Let's give them some titles or or build some context around them that need to be thought about and included when we are planning ahead. So the first thing you want to do is, if you're a corporation, let's say, is put together a team. And you're going to want to know who's in charge of that team, who's going to spearhead it. So actually, our our colleague, James Haggerty, has has written a book called Chief Crisis Officer. And in it, he details the importance of having a team together and knowing who's going to lead the charge. And it may not always be the most obvious person. You know, people assume it's going to be the CEO, but it it may not. There may be somebody else who's going to take on that responsibility. And then once you have that team assembled and and a person in charge, what you want to do is, you know, start to develop strategies, as, as Isaac and I have both mentioned, with regard to different situations that could arise. Even though you'll never know all the details until they actually happen, you certainly wanna make sure that you have a list of however many things there are that are general areas of concern, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's a, a, you know, a, an employee who stepped out of line and did something incorrect publicly, whatever the case may be, although you don't know all the details, you're gonna know the basic situation and you should have templates prepared of what your public statement is going to be that you could adjust with the details as they unfold. If you do that, not only is it an, an obvious help because it gives you a head start, but it also helps you think clearer. It puts your mind at ease. It allows you to process this information, which is flying at you and, and you know, at the speed of light. It allows you to process it quicker and know how you best want to handle it going forward. So, as with anything in life, sports or whatever, uh, preparation is is really the biggest key. Hi, Zach. Jim just spoke about information flying at us at the speed of light and choosing the right language and messaging in a timely manner has become extremely critical, yet there is so much pressure considering the immediacy of information dissemination through channels like social media or mobile or cell phones. What does the right language or messaging look like? Or even are there things that we should really avoid, any any furfies? When our colleague was writing that book, uh, Chief Crisis Officer, we researched tens of thousands of public statements. And one of the things that Jim found was that in every single major scandal, it wasn't 
the incident that created the scandal, but it was actually a fumbled first response. And that first response, when you're caught lying or you're caught not appreciating the gravity of the situation, puts you on the defensive. And then the story inevitably becomes how they've bungled this. And that is the real crisis for a company saying, oh my God, they're still on the front page. What's happening? It's because they've screwed it up to the point where they are now the issue at hand. I think one of the most important things right off the bat when an exploding crisis is happening is putting out an initial statement, and, and you mentioned it, and you're right, you know, there is no time anymore to really get your senses together, which is why preparation is important. But letting them know you understand the gravity of the situation, you're aware of what's happening, here's what we know, and most of all, being empathetic. If there's an incident saying, you know, we stand with the victims or we're aware of the situation, even if it's not the full-throated, full apology you will eventually issue, sometimes, you know, when, when looking at uh, sponsorships, it's we are suspending this campaign while we find out more details. But if you nip that in the bud so that the story is no longer, what are you doing about this issue? Because you've, you've said, here's what we know, here's what we're doing, we're aware of it, and we're on top of it. That's a holding statement that will keep the press at bay and give you a little bit more time to figure out what your values are and how that's reflected in the situation. Jim, again, you spoke about the crisis or, or the challenge of information flying at us at the speed of light, but we can turn that around and help ourselves and access channels that help us get information out there quickly. What are the most effective ways to get a response out when we're in a crisis? Are some platforms like email or social media better than others, or is it all kind of the same once the, the message sort of gets out there and gets going? Yeah, it's really the latter. It's all the same once it gets out there. So your statement is going to be considered your statement, whether you tweeted it out or uh, you know sent an email to a reporter. It's all going to be fodder for their press. So depending on the situation or the industry that you're in, there may be different ways that make more sense. But interestingly enough, one thing that we've found that people oftentimes forget about is their own website, because that's really the place which should be the authoritative statement. And people are very quick now to think social media, which they should, or some other method, you know, a phone call, an email. But you should really have a statement out on your website so that when people look, whether it's the general public or the media, they could see this is exactly what they wanted to say. This is what they thought about and carefully crafted and put out there. So it's one of those things where you just you don't want to be remiss and forget your own website. Sports journalism has become a huge factor in crisis communication. When something goes wrong, it is typically someone else outside of the organization breaking the story. We don't generally find organizations getting on the front foot and breaking bad news stories. And these days, there is very little opportunity to actually get ahead of the story. Sometimes we, in organizations, can be in the middle of that list of people finding out. Isaac, as such, what role do you think this plays in how a sports team or an athlete responds to a story that, that isn't favorable? I think that's a great question, especially in sports journalism. Athletes and brands are so used to entirely favorable coverage. And, you know, no pun intended, they're used to softballs. You know, 
tell us what you were thinking before you hit that grand slam, you know, every, you know, or sitting in front of your locker room. So it does put folks on the defensive when they're responding to something that they don't have control over. I think one of the things as sports journalism has become a little more puff piece and also smaller, you know, with the news industry, the way it is, I think it's important for folks to remember that you don't have to respond to the reporter breaking the story. If you have relationships with others, other newspapers, other websites, reporters who have known you a long time, they may not buy what you're selling and they may not merely read a puff piece saying, everybody's wrong, you didn't do this. But they might be more willing to hear out your side of the story. And so it feels, it often feels like people feel the pressure to respond to the reporter who's breaking the news or the columnist eviscerating your brand. But you have plenty of relationships. And again, it's important to remember that they won't go easy on you but they may have a background where they understand you a little bit more. We had a case here in America last month where a batting coach was high-fiving everybody after a win, and uh, he seek-hiled as a joke. And, and he, I was actually watching it live, and on Twitter, everybody was really going crazy. And the beat reporter immediately tweeted, wow, this is, this is crazy. I've known him for a long time. He would never do this. He's a great guy. And so when he goes, he's good. And then, and then three hours later, she goes, I just got off the phone with him. He feels awful. You don't have to go to the person breaking the story, the person who only is seeing red to get your, your side of the story out there. The absolute worst case scenario in crisis communications, and especially when it comes to athletes, is you want to avoid at all costs a hand in the camera, no comment moment. That's the worst. That is always the story. And so when something comes up and you're so used to getting softballs and you're so used to answering what's your favorite color or, you know, how'd you hit that home run? What were you feeling? And something comes up, you're, 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 the first instinct is always say, get out of my face, literally. Get out of my face. I'm not answering that. I don't have to. I'm a private person. That is always the worst case scenario. And so you can't run from bad news all the time. Sometimes, you know, you can, you can decline comment for a story. There's always nuance to it, but you can never ignore it and hope it goes away or, you know, act out and say, get away. That always makes the problem worse. And so I think with, with athletes who are used to a certain dynamic with sports journalists, when that changes and there's adversity, don't push them away, but figure out how you're going to get your side out there in at the speed you want rather than going at the speed of the news i think the number of statements analyzed in the book chief crisis team i think you guys said it was about ten thousand. so we've seen and, and you guys have seen plenty of good and bad statements that kick off a, a response to a crisis Isaac, do you think statements hold as much value as we maybe have traditionally placed on them in modern sport now as, as I said before, I think they might actually hold more, but only if done wrong. You know, you only remember the, the, the glaring mistakes. And the news cycles now are, I don't know even know if they last 24 hours anymore. And unfortunately, in our business, nobody remembers a good statement, but everybody remembers a bad one. 
And so I think just getting it out there in, in social media early and effective is critical now more than ever because so many people will only encounter the backlash to your statement more than ever before. Jim, it was great to get the batting coach example from Isaac before. So let's continue in that vein, look at another one, another example of crisis communication, which was forced because of sponsors, the pressure that the Washington football team, formerly known as the Washington Redskins, the pressure that they received to change their name was well documented, which ultimately forced the owner's hand uh, with a private letter from FedEx, which had a $205 million US stadium naming rights deal with the team. And in that letter, they threatened that unless the team changed its name, FedEx would remove its signage from the stadium, which was six years before the deal was actually set to expire. So, Jim, can you critique how you think the team handled this from a communications perspective? Well, not very well, unfortunately, for them. You know, their ownership, not to pick on them too much, but uh, has been considered a little insensitive and tone deaf, you know, even prior to this. So uh, the way they handled this didn't really help their cause. The thing that's interesting about it is, you know, we were talking so much about preparation. People who may not follow American football every day don't realize the issue with the name Redskins has been going on for decades. This is one of the original uh, football teams in the NFL. And people have been, you know, calling for maybe not to the extent that they are now, but for going back a couple of decades to previous ownership, you know, asking for the name to be changed. So this was hardly new for them. This is something that even though publicly they may have been resisting it and defending the name, they should have been preparing for it. They should have been searching for a name. That process, if done right and correctly, when you talk to people who have done it, does not happen overnight. It takes time. There's a lot of research involved, everything from legal matters to just physically making the change happen. So they easily could have been doing that behind the scenes, and they clearly weren't. Hence, they're called the Washington football team now, which you know, maybe fine and, and, and maybe it'll stick and maybe they'll wear it as a, as a badge of honor. But if they had thought about it ahead of time and even not even just that, but even their response when they were, you know, decided to, okay, listen, we don't have time to do a proper change. So we're just going with Washington football team for now. They even sort of bungled that, you know, their Twitter handle still had Redskins in it. Depending on where you looked, you still found Redskins messaging uh, on the, even on their own site. They didn't make a clean sweep the way they needed to right from the get-go. They kind of, you know, when, when something like that pops up, you really need to leave no stone unturned when you're, you know, making the change and putting it out there. And they didn't do a very good job of that. And, and they're, they're a prime example, as you said, of, you know, money talking where, you know, FedEx and, and also Nike and Pepsi were in on that as well, kind of threw their weight around and, and forced the issue. And that was no secret. It was pretty obvious that they're, you know, the football team's hand was being forced, which, of course, is not a great look for them. It appears to me that with these social issues that a good segment of society moves forward and believes a certain thing and forces pressure, but there are people with egos who are stubborn that don't want to change. Because for me, it seemed like it would be a really positive thing to embrace the change, maybe even from a cynical point of view, maybe pick up more fans because they're seeing an organisation that is that is taking them upon themselves. So is there a question there around ego? It, it, it's a very fair point uh, because, let's face it, the people who own 
professional sports franchises are very wealthy people, uh, especially in the States. We just saw the New York Mets being sold for, you know, close to two and a half billion dollars. So uh, people in that position genuinely are not used to resistance or not having their way. And, you know, it goes hand in hand maybe with having a little bit of an ego or sort of feeling like I'm going to do what I want to do. And that just doesn't fly anymore. They have to be more socially responsible. And you can't just ram your opinion down your throat. The, the previous one of the Redskins was famous for saying that name will never, ever, ever change. He was adamant about it. Now, again, that was going back away. But even the, the current owner like clearly didn't feel the need and didn't grasp immediately that it was bigger than him. And again, not to not to throw too much shade on him, but it, it's generally a lot of times guys in that situation, and I say guys because there are certainly more men owners of sports teams and women, uh, you know, tend to feel like they know best and they're just kind of do as they please, which again, just really is short-sighted in this day and age. I don't think it's merely a question of ego, but I think if we look a little bit broader, often what debilitates or handicaps brands, owners, not just ego, but it's fear. It's fear that even though, as you mentioned, the public is moving forward on this, the social media mob is very loud and all these people threatening boycotts are very, very loud. But I think the research shows, I know the research shows, that brands taking a positive stand moving forward actually is incredibly rewarding. And standing with someone that you say that we share values and then putting your money where your mouth is on that actually can build brand value. And there's plenty of research that shows that. And so it's not just ego, but it's fear and people saying, well, there will be backlash. There will be 15, 20% of our engagement that threatens to no longer watch us or videos of us burning our jerseys, you know, vilifying our brand. But a, in the long run, I don't know how many people who swear off watching football because of Colin Kaepernick actually don't watch football because they love football. And also, you might get more fans. And the research shows that taking a stand, you can be political without delving in too much. I mean, the past four years with Donald Trump here in America have been quite divisive. But for brands to go out on a limb and say, we are responding to what our fans are asking of us really gets rewarded. I'd agree. I think there's lots of opportunity there. And I love this conversation around unpacking and looking more closely at these, for want of a better phrase, pseudo case studies. So Isaac, let's stay with you for a moment. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Not particularly as a crisis, but as you spoke about then, more towards how sports teams moved to support and rally behind a very important social justice movement. Again, it has been very well documented, and rightly so. The Black Lives Matter movement was adopted by the NBA, F1, EPL, and other major sporting codes right around the world. Thinking about what we've just spoken about, what is your take on how these sports and various sporting teams responded to this particular movement? Because just ignoring it, and taking the internal stance that sport doesn't need to get involved in things like this was, in fact, often called out and opposed, i.e. if you aren't with us in on this movement, you're actually against us. Absolutely. I mean, a no answer is the wrong answer in this case. 
But I think it's, it's an amazing question, especially for this podcast, because what we've seen over the past three or four months and going back a couple of years really takes us to the heart of the relationship between a brand and its athlete or a team and its athlete. And it's the rare opportunity where, where players are saying, this is what we want. These are our values. And for a team to ignore those calls and to just put out a statement, you know, a holding statement, when players are saying, I'm demanding more, you know, that goes to the heart of, are you rooting for laundry or are you these players really affiliated with what you believe in? And I think that we've seen across the board, some earlier than others, but leagues and brands understanding that players aren't being activists lightly, right? Here in America, there's a, there's a classic uh, criticism of Michael Jordan from the early 90s where Michael Jordan said, well, Republicans buy sneakers too. And Republicans buy sneakers in 2020, but that is not how brands navigate these issues anymore. I, I think that when players are saying, we want you to listen, but we don't want you to listen, but we want to see that you're hearing us. That's an incredible opportunity. And here at PRCG, we believe in something called the credibility bank. And even if something negative happens and there's quite a deposit of, of credit there, how have you earned trust and how are you earning trust going forward so that when people look at what you're doing and they hear something negative, they can look you up and say, oh, but they do X, Y, and Z and, they're, and, and they can back up what they're saying. And this is such a fascinating opportunity to build credibility with your players and with your fans and your supporters and your brands and say, you're demanding something of us and we're not just doing the least possible, taking the, the, the path of least resistance, but we're hearing you and we're putting our money and we're putting our efforts and, and we're putting our resources behind supporting you when you wanna take a stand and that has really paid off for the people who understood that lesson early. Jim, following on from Isaac's credibility comments there, we often hear or read about player scandals. Someone did or is doing something wrong, something they shouldn't be, and they then provide a statement and a super scripted apology. And then almost half the time, the world forgets what happened in six months or maybe even less. It just feels like they're going through the motions. Why are scandals at that point? first point in time such a circus and how do you think sports teams can make their comms approach a little more human well for starters uh, i think if you're an athlete or a team you could never just count on a scandal going away you're right some of the the less egregious ones might disappear uh, as time goes on but they're always just a google search away you know it, it, it's never going to really go away the best seo in the world won't completely wipe the slate clean so if you want to be conscious about your image, uh, you know, you really want to watch your step. But if you do have to address a scandal, something you've done that maybe was just misconstrued, whatever the case may be, you're going to want to be genuine. I, I mentioned this earlier, and it really is the most important thing to not sound too scripted. Sure, you should think about your thoughts ahead of time, but you don't want to come across as being, I'm just reading the statement because I have to do it. It should sound real. It should sound like it's from the heart. That's really the most important thing. And, and as Isaac mentioned, whether that people will buy that or not depends on your credibility bank. If you've already earned enough goodwill 
you'll probably be forgiven, especially if you are being forthcoming and, and, and genuine and honest with what you're saying. If you haven't, maybe not so much. So really everything is sort of predicated on what you've done before. So it's in your best interest if you're a public figure and athlete to just keep building on positive things like that. That's great advice. But let's look at how that then leverages up to the organization level, the rights holder, the sports team, and people who are sponsoring them. As I said earlier, professional athletes being caught up in a scandal is something that unfortunately seems to happen on a near regular basis. And this really can put a sponsor in a difficult spot. They likely issued a statement in the past when they first signed that sponsorship, or maybe it was a renewal that said something along the lines of, we're delighted to have come on board as a sponsor and our cultures as organizations align perfectly and we're really looking forward to helping the community and all these really positive things. When that's no longer the case and a sponsor feels like their values don't align with the sports team and the rights holder anymore thanks in part to an embarrassing or highly inappropriate action or accusation towards the athlete, how do you advise the sports team, the organisation, the rights holder to respond to that publicity that a sponsor is going to walk away? Yeah, that, that's a really tricky one for a sponsor. Like you said, it, it puts them in a, in a bad spot. You know, there, there's a couple of different ways you could go with it. And a lot of it does depend on what the scandal is or what the public knows about the scandal. So if it's a he said, she said type of thing, you know, basically it's in your best interest to not just immediately abandon the athlete if you're the sponsor. Typically, if you could stick with them, kind of say, listen, if what we're hearing is true, it would be very upsetting. But right now we're giving the benefit of our doubt. We've had a longstanding relationship. So-and-so is a good person. Uh, you know, you want to, you know, come across with things like that. And if they are proven to be, innocent or that there are some extenuating circumstances that the public didn't know, you'll come off looking better for being loyal. However, there are some situations where video is recorded, which with everyone in the world having a phone, that you know happens quite often. If there's a, uh, a portion of a video, even if it's not the entire thing and we don't know what led up to it, but if it's very obviously damning, that's a little bit of a different scenario. It might be the case where the sponsor wants to say, from what we've seen, this doesn't look very good. We're temporarily suspending our relationship with this person until further details are made available. We hope that this is not true, whatever the case may be. But I think you have to judge each situation a little bit differently because there are certain situations where a bit more blatant than others, and you can't just necessarily handle all those situations the same. Just to jump in and add one thing, there is a remarkable difference in extenuating factors depending on how the brand is aligned with the athlete in question. If it is, you know, a sneaker company that is sponsoring a runner, research shows that there's a lot more leeway for them to stick by someone, right? There's a reason why we're affiliated with them. If it's merely this guy's popular, we want to access his 4 million Instagram fans, but we're a watch company and you never see the athlete wearing the watch on the court, then it's a lot easier for them to step away and not feel criticized for it. But if they're saying there's a reason why we're aligning with this athlete because he uses us or because our brand is, is really closely knit, he's in our wheelhouse. Then we found that sticking by an athlete in question actually carries a lot more favor. Excuse the pun, 
But if the shoe is on the other foot, how do you think a professional athlete or sports organisation, or particularly a, a professional athlete, an individual, should respond if a company that sponsors them is making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Let's pick up that example with the runner and the shoes, that maybe the shoes are being produced in adverse conditions and people are being underpaid and, it, and it's in a third world country and people are being exploited. Or maybe that brand has started to do things that is no longer in line with the beliefs of the athlete what advice do you have for them when they're thinking i'm not sure this sponsor is a good fit for me anymore going back to what i was mentioning earlier where athletes have unbelievable opportunities to reflect their authentic selves whether it be first person sites like the players tribune or instagram or You know, so much of sports journalism is really owned media now by athletes and you get to show your genuine self that I think more than ever before, athletes have the opportunity to go their own way and they have more support than ever to say, this brand no longer reflects me, I'm out. And because, especially because they have the opportunity to explain why, and we know in this day and age, half the time people will be asking them anyways in their comments. I think that, that more than ever before, athletes, ones who are really, really successful, show their true selves and are open and you get to know their personality. And it would be too much of an oxymoron to say, you know me, you know the real me, but I'm, I'm sticking with this brand because they're paying me even though it goes against the values that I've already told you I believe in. And more than ever, they'll probably make that up somewhere else because that's the greatest capital that a brand can associate with an athlete, especially if they say, I'm leaving this brand and I'm choosing this brand because they reflect who I want to be associated with, that they have more power than than ever before to dictate, if I don't agree with you, whether it be politically, socially, or even I just don't think you're going in the right direction, I'm leaving. And here's why. Jim, we've probably scared a few listeners by now. Apologies for that, everyone. So in a more positive light, how do you think sports teams and individual athletes can navigate through this evolving landscape? Because it's definitely changed from what it would have been 10, maybe even 20, 30 years ago. How do they educate and prepare themselves well? So the first thing they could do, the easiest thing would be to work with their internal public relations teams to maybe do some media training and figure out you know, the right way to approach uh, sensitive situations, or they could hire people like Isaac and myself to do uh, media training, you know, on the outside. So either way, that's always a good idea. But but something they could do instantaneously is just be observant. Just take note of other professional athletes, both good and bad, how they're perceived and what they're doing correctly or incorrectly. So, you know, someone may want to look at at like a Rory McIlroy to say, wow, he gets a lot of credit for being down to earth and genuine and forthcoming, you know, and that seems to help him if he's ever in a bit of a tight situation because he's built up his credibility bank and and people speak highly of him because he's a genuine sort of guy. So you want to be more like Rory and less like a Novak Djokovic, who, although by all accounts, a very nice guy, just sort of gets in his own way a little too often. Um, And, you know, you could look at that and learn from his mistakes and realize, wow, I could have handled this a little bit better or, you know, what he said here didn't really make sense and he probably should have worded that differently. 
So if you keep your eyes and ears open, you'd be surprised at how many examples there are out there where you could model yourself on. Great chat, gentlemen. So much excellent and really practical advice. And I'm sure all the listeners will be looking at Sponsorship Crisis Communications much more closely and much more well-educated as they will undoubtedly and unfortunately unfold in the future. Isaac, if listeners want to connect with you and keep the conversation going or find out more about what PRCG Sports does, what can they do? They can find us at prcgsports.com. They can also listen to the podcast, Crisis Communications and Sports, that Jim and I host. It's a fascinating conversation that continues off of all the themes that we've hit here. Uh, we bring on really great guests talking about what's going on in the news or talking about how they've handled crises in the past. And um, you can find that all on prcgsports.com or wherever you find podcasts. Excellent. And listeners, of course, as always, we'll have all of the links for the show notes at callsoftware.com, including the website, a link to the podcast, and we'll also get a link for the book that the gents mentioned earlier in the show notes as well. Jim Rocco, Director, PRCG Sports, and Isaac Benjamin, Account Supervisor at PRCG Sports. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Crisis Communications in the sponsorship industry. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Thanks a lot. It's been great. Totally love that chat with Jim and Isaac. And it was just so chock full of great advice that I know a lot of you will be able to put to good use, especially sponsorship managers at rights holders who might need to go into damage control and crisis communication in terms of communicating with sponsors. However, I hope you never really have to use Jim and Isaac's advice at the pointy end, apart from that advice about being prepared, a very important advice. You can find out more about Jim, Isaac, and PRCG Sports by visiting prcg.com. There's a link to the site in the show notes at coresoftware.com as well as to their LinkedIn profiles, PRCG's own podcast, which I highly recommend, and also the book that the gents mentioned, Chief Crisis Officer, Structure and Leadership for Effective Communications Response, which is authored by PRCG's president and CEO, James Haggerty. That's a wrap for episode 88. And thank you so much for all the legends that got in contact and said hi and I gave a shout out to at the start of the show. I'd love to give a shout out to everyone else, even if you've had one before. So please get in touch and say hi and I will make that happen for you. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R at callsoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.